Hear now the very word of God as it is given to us in the Gospel of Luke, reading from the fourth chapter, verses 5 through 8. And the devil took him up and showed him all the kingdoms of the world in a moment of time and said to him, To you I will give all this authority and their glory, for it has been delivered to me, and I give it to whom I will. If you then will worship me, it will all be yours. And Jesus answered him, It is written, You shall not worship the Lord, you shall worship the Lord your God, and him only shall you serve. And may the Lord bless that reading of his word to our understanding this morning. Let's ask him to bring it alive. Heavenly Father, as we imagine or try to visualize this and we, we sort of poke beneath the surface uh, of this temptation to see what the real temptation actually was and then how Jesus responds to it. Lord, may, may we learn some valuable lessons this morning. Uh, may the church in general learn this lesson that we're simply not going to conquer Babylon with the tools and weapons of the enemy. We need the tools and weapons of your kingdom in order to do that. We will give you the glory. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. One of the great theologians of church history was a man who actually had more to do with the Reformation than most people think that he did because he lives back in the 4th and 5th century. Uh, and his name was Augustine. Sometimes he is known as St. Augustine. He spent most of his life in northern Africa, educated and lived for a while in Rome, Carthage. Um, but he was a great theologian and he wrote quite a few books uh, about theology and other things. And perhaps his magnum opus, the, the great book of the theology that he wrote, was called The City of God. And it was a masterful theological treatise of Christianity and its doctrines and its principles. But it was also very practical in, in that it addressed two kingdoms or two cities that seem to be locked in this eternal struggle. The, the city of God, which of course Jesus established, well of course it goes back farther than that, but Jesus established when he brought the kingdom. And then there's what he called the earthly city. Sometimes we call it the city of man. And it stands over and against the city of God. And it speaks of a very intense spiritual warfare that exists not only in the cosmos between Michael and his angels and the devil and his, but also right here on earth, and we experience it every single day. Now, as Christians, we are given a commission to take the gospel into the darkness, to share the light of Christ with people, and in essence, to conquer the city of man or the earthly city. Now, for convenience sake, I'm going to follow John and Revelation. And when I speak of the kingdoms of the world and the city of man, which happens to be the culture that is all around us, I'm just going to refer to it as he did as Babylon the Great, because that's such a classic picture of the evil culture that surrounds us. But as Christians, we are called to conquer Babylon. We are called to take the gospel out and to wage this war. So how do we do it? How does a small group of people comparatively um, fight a much stronger foe comparatively, I'm talking in human terms, and, and win? How do we conquer? Unfortunately, what has happened throughout the annals of history is that the church has tried to use the weapons and the tools of the devil to defeat his own kingdom. That doesn't work, folks. And so we're going to see Jesus refuse to do that. And we're going to see him use the weapons and the tools and the methods of the kingdom of heaven. And that will make all the difference. And we can take a very valuable lesson from that. Now, we are in the second of three uh, temptations, and most of you know this. You're very well familiar with it. Uh, and by the way, you probably also noticed that Luke sort of switches the order of the second and third temptations from what Matthew does. And, and we'll talk more about that next week of why he does that. But um, we've already learned some things about the temptations in general. First of all, we learned that it was the Holy Spirit who led Jesus, filled 
filled with the Holy Spirit into the desert and then led him around for the 40 days that he was there. So it is the sovereign act of God that he is going through that desert experience. Well, we also learned that for those 40 days, the devil, like a dog yapping at his heels, is following him around, waiting for the opportune moment to strike. And that, of course, is after he is emaciated. But in that picture, the sovereignty of God and the attack of the devil, we described a word that Martin Luther used quite a bit to define that, and it was the German word Unfestung. Did you go talk to people this week about Unfestung and, 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 and the, um, the details about it? Well, nonetheless, that's the, the, the idea that Satan is the, he might be the one bringing the temptation, but God doesn't tempt and he does not get tempted. And so therefore he tempts no one, but he does test us and allow the devil to have his way. We looked at Job and particularly we looked back at the Garden of Eden because we noticed in that garden, we noticed uh, the modus operandi that Satan used or the method that he used against Adam and Eve. It's the same one he's using against Jesus in, in the desert. In other words, first thing that he does is wait for the opportune time, wait until Eve was probably alone, wait until Jesus was starving to death. And then creates confusion in their minds about what did God really say? Did God really say you couldn't eat that fruit? Or if you're the son of God, if you really are the son of God? And then after he tries to create confusion, if that doesn't work, well, he just opens the river of lies. To out and out lie to Eve, oh no, you will not die. With Jesus, it was a little bit more subtle. It was a false premise. If you're son, the son of God, then you would turn that stone into bread. And then when he has us where he wants us, when, when he's got our defenses down and we're as weak as we can possibly get, boy, that's when he hits. That's when the temptation comes. Adam toppled right over like Eve did. Jesus didn't. Because Jesus responded to everything that the devil did. In other words, you know, if you try to create doubt in my mind about the word of God, I'm just going to quote it right back to you. If you try to drown me with a river of lies, I'm going to hit you with the one thing you can't stand, which is the truth. You try to, to hit me with all these temptations, well, I'm going to stand on the rock, which is my father. And, and, and you're not going to budge me from that rock. Standing on the word of God. And, and we learn those as important things. Now, this week, we're not going to deal with that as much as we are going to deal with, well, how does Jesus resist the temptation? What are his methods? What are his tools? What are his weapons? And we'll get to that as we make our way through the text. But with that said, let's jump into that text starting in verse 5 and see if we can sort of visualize here what's going on. Um, and the devil took up, I'm sorry, the, and the devil took him up and showed him all the kingdoms of the world in a moment of time and said to him, to you, I will give all this authority and their glory. Okay, let's just kind of stop there. Um, notice the adversary. We start right off with the adversary. And we did that last week. And last week, I didn't have time to go into any detail about the devil and what scripture says about him. And I said, I might do it this week. Well, this week, I don't have time either. So I'm going to kind of put it off to the after church. We're going to look a little bit more closely at who the devil is and what 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 he's doing here. Or what scripture tells us about him. But we'll go ahead and define him as we did last week. The word devil is a Greek word that simply means accuser or slanderer. It is someone who with hostile intent brings accusations against someone else, whether they're true or false. Sometimes mainly they're false with him. Um, and Mark uses another word. He uses the word Satan, which is a Hebrew word that simply means adversary or enemy. He's the deceiver. He's the liar. He's the one who is the slave driver and owner that holds the city of man in bondage, or as we're going to call it this morning, Babylon. And, and so we'll talk a little bit more about him um, after uh, in the after church. But anyway, he's still uh, about his tricks. And so he, he, he takes Jesus up is all that Luke tells us. He doesn't tell us up where. Um, Matthew adds a little bit to that. He says he took him up on top of a high mountain. 
Now, you know how I like to visualize things, and I just struggle visualizing this. Uh, because where, where, where's the high mountain that he took him up on that he could see all the kingdoms of the world? And, and, and we have to at least consider that the temptations are not against the God nature of Jesus because he cannot be tempted, as James told us last week. So, therefore, it has to be against the human nature of Jesus. So, how did the devil get Jesus up on the high mountain that quickly? And how did he show him all of the kingdoms of the world. Well, I'm, I'm, I'm going to take a stance that some people stand very strongly against. I'm going to say this was a vision, that Jesus saw these in a vision and wasn't physically transported either to uh, one representative kingdom or all the kingdoms of the world. And I'm not saying it's not possible supernaturally. Of course it is. But what I'm saying is that I don't think it cheapens it or lessens the temptation for Jesus to be seeing all these things in a vision. After all, throughout Scripture, we have powerful things happen in visions, like Ezekiel's visions, like the visions of Daniel towards the end of his book. Like, for instance, the vision John sees in the book of Revelation. Now, none of those are cheapened or made less less meaningful because uh, of that their visions. And so we're just going to, whether that's the way it is or not, that's the way we're going to see it. That Jesus sees all these kingdoms kind of flashed in front of him. Now we're going to, as I said, we're going to look at this representatively. I'm just going to call all those kingdoms of the world Babylon. And Babylon's a great Example, uh, you know, b- because Babylon was glorious, it was fortified, it was virtually impregnable, and we know that, for instance, the Hanging Gardens of Babylon were can still considered to be one of the seven wonders of the ancient world. It was be glorious beyond measure as far as human beings were concerned. So, therefore, it's really good as a representative kingdom. But there's one thing that I want you to notice about the kingdoms of the world or this Babylon. That exclusively, this is the work of the hands of man. These are the kingdoms of man. And, for, and forgive the, the gender here. I'm, I'm going to use the historic gender because it ties in. These are the kingdoms and this is the city of man, going all the way back to the first siblings after Cain killed his brother Abel, he created the first city. And he didn't name it after God. He named it after his own progeny, his son. And so therefore you can trace the beginning of the earthly city or the city of man or that earthly Babylon the Great all the way back to Cain and, 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 and or the beginning of time virtually. Uh, and, and then you have other examples of the city of man like Babel. That would be a good representation trying to build a tower up to God. Or, or the, the, the Egypt of the Pharaohs, the beautiful pyramids and all of the great structures built on the blood and sweat and lives of the very people of God. That's a really good picture of Babylon the Great. There, there, there's one particular scene in the book of Daniel that just fits this beautifully. You may remember this. this is from the fourth chapter of Daniel. Remember, it's actually Nebuchadnezzar who's doing the, the, the narration here. And he's telling about a dream that he had. And he went to Daniel to have it uh, interpreted. And Daniel said, you better watch out because if you don't give God the glory, you're going to end up like a beast out in the field eating grass for seven years. Well, unfortunately for him, he forgot that. And so we read this in the fourth chapter. He's, he's, he's walking on top of his palace and surveying the glory, or at least what he thinks is the glory of his city. And he said to himself, is not this great Babylon, which I have built by my mighty power as a royal residence and for the glory of my majesty? Okay, that, brothers and sisters, is Babylon. That's the kind of city that it is. It is a city that represents the work of godless men or godless man. But there's one other point that I want to make about the city or, or, or Babylon here. And that is that it's not just the city of man. It's a city of men. 
And, and, and I'm not going to explain that right now, but I want you to keep that in mind. It's not just the buildings. It's not just the glitter. It's not just the wealth. It's not just the, the stuff that you can see. These kingdoms are filled with people. Millions, billions of people are being flashed in front of Jesus as he ostentatiously shows him the kingdoms of the world. Now, there's one other phrase there that I want to bring out, and Luke alone is the one who tells us this. He tells us that that the devil did this in a moment of time. And, And to me, that just speaks of what the devil is trying to do. He's trying to impress Jesus with what he has to give in a moment's time. Now, let me explain why I think, unlike some people who say, well, this is probably just a representative kingdom. Maybe he took him overseeing Rome, you know, and he sees Rome in all of its glory. And and, and that's kind of what he's talking about. I I think that he's flashing all these kingdoms in front of him. Let me just use this as an example. At all in a moment, 60 seconds. Let's say that you have a 60-second video to make, and what I'm trying to do is to impress you about all of the beautiful buildings in the United States. Well, I could go about it two ways. By the way, 60 seconds, those of you who've had anything to do with digital, you know, making videos, that's a lifetime as far as a video clip is concerned. So 60 seconds, you can get an awful lot of stuff in there. So on on one attempt, I would just simply get one of those droids, you know, that flies up and takes the picture of, uh, of Manhattan and just shows you the skyline of New York. And there it sits for 60 seconds. Now, that's impressive because those are impressive buildings. But imagine that I took the same 60 seconds, and rather than 60 seconds of one skyline, I showed you three-second clips of 20 of the finest skylines in the country. Boston and Chicago and Dallas and Miami and San Francisco and on and on. And three seconds, which is plenty of time for your mind to grasp it, three seconds at a shot, I am showing you all of these different skylines. Well, you're going to walk away blown away because I didn't realize there was that much wealth, that much glory, that many buildings in this country that we have. So that's what Satan's trying to do. Satan's trying to impress Jesus by the power and the glory that he has at his disposal. And the question I ask is, do you think Jesus is really tempted by that? Do you really think that he's impressed by the cities of this world? Or do you think that maybe he would be looking at something else? Something else that would really tempt him? Well, we'll get to that in a moment. Anyway, after he shows them all the kingdoms of the world in a moment's time, he he then goes over the top with his boastfulness, his audacious and pretentious offer to Jesus. And the devil took him up and showed him all the kingdoms of the world in a moment's time and said to him, to you I will give all this authority and their glory for it has been delivered to me. And I give it to whom I will. A little bit pretentious there, don't you think? Well, first of all, I want you to notice sometimes when you're reading scripture, you need to notice what's not there as well as what's there. So does anybody notice something that's not in this temptation that is in both of the others? The first one and the second one both start with the same phrase. This one doesn't. And the phrase is, if you're the son of God, twice. And the first and the third, not this one. And the reason I think that, that that's, the devil leaves that out, because he's really not tempting Jesus as the Son of God right now. Now, of course, all of these temptations are designed to draw a wedge, to drive a wedge between Son and Father. But here, the temptation doesn't necessarily have to do with his sonness, his sonship. It has to do with the Son of Man more. In other words, the cosmic Christ. Jesus is the Davidic Messiah. He has come to establish a kingdom and to rule and reign that kingdom. And that is exactly where Satan is attacking him. Not in his relationship with the Father as uh, alone, but also in his relationship with the people he came to save. And I believe, brothers and sisters, therein is the heart of why this is such an evil 
and insidious temptation by the devil. Now he, he says that um, he showed him all of the all of the authority and glory. Now I get the authority part. That's not hard for me because Satan's a a harsh taskmaster, like anyone that's evil, that is in power and control, is a tyrant. And no doubt that Satan is a slave driver, literally, those who are slaves to sin. So I get the authority part, Satan thinking that he has authority. But how on earth do you think he says glory? Does he really think that he has a glory to offer Jesus that is greater than the glory that Jesus already has. Remember what Hebrews says. He's the radiance of God's glory. You remember what John says in his prologue. We have seen his glory. The glory as of the only son from the father full of grace and truth. Jesus set aside his glory. And in the 17th chapter of John he says father restore to me the glory. That I had with you before the foundations of the world. So how on earth does the devil actually think that he has any glory that he can give Jesus? And I think we begin to see why I say our enemy is so frightening. Because no one in their right mind is going to offer the Son of God glory. But he does. By showing him these tawdry kingdoms that glitter and gleam as far as we're concerned. I'm not sure. In fact, I don't think that they glitter and gleam at all as far as Jesus was concerned. But notice what he says next. Again, just completely over the top. Do you all give this authority and their glory? For it has been delivered to me. And I give it to whom I will. Wow. It has been delivered to me, and I give it to whom I will. Now, a question arises here. Okay, we know that Satan's a liar. We also know that he's maniacally uh, deluded. And so is this just him lying? Is, or does he have some claim? Actually, does he have some claim to these kingdoms of the world? And are they his to give? And if they are, well... Who delivered them to him? Now, Scripture does identify the devil as the ruler. Jesus several times said this. In fact, back in the um, 12th chapter of John, Jesus says this towards the end of his ministry. Now is the judgment of this world. Now will the ruler of this world be cast out. He calls Satan the ruler of this world. In the 14th chapter, the ruler of this world is coming. He has no claim on me. Paul in Ephesians refers to him as the prince of the power of the air. John in his first epistle says the whole world lies in the power of the evil one. So in what way is Satan the ruler of this world? Well, brothers and sisters, we have to define what do you mean by world, right? Remember, those of you who were here in the study of John, you remember that we talked about there's like six different ways that that word is used, cosmos in in the Greek. And I'm just going to pick out two of them. Because on the one hand, world refers to the planet upon which we live. Okay, the planet that is circling our sun, part of this solar system, that is part of our galaxy, is part of this universe that God created. So guess what? This world belongs to God. It's his, and and the devil has absolutely no claim on it whatsoever. But there's another meaning of the word world. It, It can refer to the mass of fallen humanity at enmity with God and in open rebellion against him. In fact, John uses that, that meaning of world over and over and over again. So in that sense, yes, Satan is the ruler of this world, that fallen world. Remember, he's the king rat of the sewer. He's the one that runs things and the prince of the power of the air. And it's his dominion that we're in, in that sense. So in that sense, well, yes, this world is his to give. Now, the question is, who gave it to him? Who delivered the world to him? 
Well, it's not as easy of a question to answer as you might imagine. Let's go back to the beginning. In the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. They're his, 100%, all of it. On the sixth day, what did he do? He stepped back and he says, it's very good. This is the world that God intended to have. And it was his world, and it was exact following the Lord, and it was right smack where it should have been. Then, of course, the devil enters uh, space and time, goes into the garden, he tempts Eve, Adam and Eve fell, and all creation fell with them. And then in the third chapter of Genesis, God curses the man and the woman and the snake. And, and basically in that curse, there was a wedge drawn between God and Adam, the way that they were in, in the garden. And so, in a sense, when God cursed Adam and Eve, he gave them over to their new nature, their fallen nature. Now, I'm not going to say yet that he's given them or delivered them to Satan, because actually, I, I think the delivery is something different. Paul talks about this in the first chapter of Romans. We don't have time to go into it in any depth. But in the first chapter of Romans, Paul talks about what happens to a culture, something that many of us are so afraid has actually happened to the culture in we live, in which we live, the Western culture. But when God removes his hand of blessing, when he removes his hand of protection, he gives them over to their base instincts. This is what... The Romans says in the 24th verse of the first chapter, Therefore God gave them up in the lust of their hearts to impurity, to the dishonoring of their bodies among themselves. God removes his hand of common grace and gives them up to their fallen nature. Now along comes the devil masquerading as an angel of light. The father of all lies... And he says, just follow me, just worship me, and I will give you all this. No different than what he's saying to Jesus, just on a much smaller scale. In other words, you can have Babylon in all of its sensuality, in all of its wealth, in all of its glory. You just have to worship me. And unfortunately, what happens without the restraints of the hand of God in common grace, they just deliver themselves over heart and soul. Oh, man. Yeah, we this is what we want. This is the life we want. You know, we don't want God around us at all. We just want um, what, what we can get all the gusto in the life that we can possibly have. And so they voluntarily sell their souls to Babylon. So yeah, in that sense, Satan has been delivered these kingdoms. And in that sense, he does have them to give away. Now that brings up a question. Are you with me? Are you following me here? Because that brings up actually two questions. First question is, how much of that did Jesus know? When he's there in the desert and the devil's giving him that vision and showing him all the cities of the world, how aware of the, the, the tricks and the evil intent of, 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 of the devil and where he stood actually in the whole history of humanity, how much of that did Jesus know? Well, you, you have to admit that he, he knew it well. I mean, 12 years old, he's in the temple showing people what the scripture says. He knows scripture inside out. So even in his human nature, Jesus was brilliant and he was brilliantly aware of what scripture says. So absolutely he recognizes the fallen world and he recognizes the ruler of that world. And he recognizes that when Satan flashes all of these kingdoms in front of him, that they're not infecting him in the slightest so that brings up a second question. So if Jesus is not tempted by the gleam and glitter of these kingdoms, the wealth and the power, then was this a valid temptation? Was he really tempted? I mean, think about it. Really, Son of God, tempted by the kingdoms of earth? So is this a valid temptation? Well, 
Brothers and sisters, it is not only a valid temptation. It is the very depths of evil that we are seeing when Satan tempts Jesus the way that he's tempting him. Because Jesus is not tempted by the the buildings and the wealth. And Satan knows it, folks. He's no idiot either. Well, he is. But, I mean, I mean he's, he's brilliant in some senses. And he knows that... He knows that Jesus knows that there's something else that he's being tempted with. Now, I know I'm leaving a lot of holes and I'm doing it on purpose because we're going to come back through this and I'm going to interpret it for you. But let's go on. Let's continue in the text and see what Satan has to say because after he says that audacious statement about the offer he's going to give Jesus, notice what he says in the seventh verse. If you then will worship me, it will all be yours. If you will worship me, that's what Satan says. This is the cost of all this. You just have to bow down and worship me. Now, I don't think for an instant, brothers and sisters, don't get me wrong. I don't think for an instant Jesus is tempted by that. I don't think there's one iota of a temptation for Jesus to fall down and worship Satan. Uh, how, how, and, and, and by the way, I, I think that Satan actually knew that. But there was indeed a real temptation that Jesus is going through when the devil says, if you'll just fall down and worship me, I will give you everything that you are seeing. Kind of, if you will, a cosmic unfestung that we're seeing when Satan uh, does this. Um, so, we see something about Satan that we might not have noticed before, but is a very real aspect of his nature that we need to make sure that we comprehend. And that is that Satan has an insatiable lust to be worshipped. Basically, there's only two kinds of worship in this world, folks. And I'm going to make a lot of people mad here. But there's only two kinds of worship. There's the worship of the one true God and there's the worship of Satan. You don't have to be worshiping Satan in a satanic cult in order to be worshiping Satan. Because there's only one true God, and there's only one true God who is worthy of worship, and that is our God. That is the triune God of Scripture, and he and he alone is worthy. We sang it earlier. And the devil is not worthy, but he has this insatiable desire to be worshiped. It takes many forms. It doesn't have to be the cult. I mean, in the primitive cultures, the animism where they worship rocks and trees and rivers, uh, that's satanic in nature. As it advances a little bit in their idols, first of stone and wood and precious metals, and then of the things like wealth and position and fame, all those idols, you're not worshiping the idol. You're, you're worshiping a creature who put that idol in front of you. And it's cleverly disguised behind it. All the so-called great religions of the world, like Islam, those are all based on worshiping Satan. All of those self-centered worship, uh, secularism, atheism, agnosticism, intellectualism, meditation, Eastern religions, whether it is, um, or uh, liberal theology even, uh, or the cults of Christianity, they're all not worshiping the God of Scripture. So therefore, if you're not worshiping the God of Scripture, you're worshiping Satan. And Satan has an insatiable desire. Oh, but goodness gracious. The pièce de résistance is in front of him right now. If he could only get the Son of God to worship him, what a coup it would be. He would be so thrilled because he would actually have God himself worshiping him. Now, brothers and sisters, here's why I say Satan is so scary. What kind of idiot thinks that? I'm serious. What kind of idiot actually believes that these cheap and tawdry kingdoms are going to have any impact on Jesus whatsoever? What kind of madman would actually believe that God would bow down and worship him? What kind of blind fool would think for one moment 
that Jesus would give up the glory of heaven and the glory that was his with the Father before the foundations of the world, that he would give that glory up so that he could have the tawdry, diminished, defiled glory of the city of man. Someone who is insane. Someone who is criminally insane. And that, brothers and sisters, is why the powerful force that we face every day is so scary. Jesus said in the 8th chapter of John, he, speaking of the devil, does not stand in the truth. Why? Because there's no truth in him. Not one little speck of truth exists in that being. He goes on to say that when he lies, he speaks out of his own character, for he is a liar and the father of lies. That's all he knows what to do is tell lies. And so that's why he's so frightening. But brothers and sisters, that's why he can be conquered. Therein is his Achilles heel. The fact that Satan does not know the truth and the fact that he doesn't understand love is the Achilles heel that will lead us to conquer Babylon. We'll make that clear in just a moment. But we want to first see Jesus' response because Jesus is going to nail this response. Okay? He's going to, he's going to point us in the right direction. He's going to give us the methodology, the modus operandi of heaven and how we conquer Babylon when he responds to the devil. Look in the verse 8. And Jesus answered him, it is written. There it is again. Okay? Standing on the word of God. Standing on the truth. It is written. And then he goes on and he quotes. He says, it is written, you shall worship the Lord your God and him only shall you serve. Him only. Now, once again, he quotes from Deuteronomy. Last week it was the 8th chapter, this week it's the 6th chapter. And, and you always, just don't read the, the, the quote, go back and read it in its context. Because it tells you a lot about what Jesus means, because Satan knows what Jesus means. And most of the early church knew what Jesus means, but we're so biblically illiterate, we don't know what he means. The 6th chapter of Deuteronomy is a big chapter, folks. Uh, Moses is saying his last words to the children of Israel before they go into the promised land because Moses can't go. And he's taking them back and reminding them of all that happened. They got them to the place where they are. And the sixth chapter is where he is saying that we have an exclusive religion. We do not worship. We do not fraternize. We do not marry. We do not have the gods of the people that you're going into. Babylon is going to be all around you. You worship the Lord your God and him only will you serve. In other words, six chapters where we have the Shema. Okay? Every Hebrew recited it at least every day. Hear, O Israel, the Lord your God, the Lord is one. You shall worship or love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, and with all your might. And shortly after that, this is what Jesus is quoting from. Not exactly word for word. But this is what he says. It is the Lord your God you shall fear. Him you shall serve. And by his name you shall swear. You shall not go after other gods. The gods of the people who are around you. For the Lord your God in your midst is a jealous God. Lest the anger of the Lord your God be kindled against you. And he destroy you from off the face of the earth. Is that straightforward enough for you? Is that emphatic enough? You see what Jesus is saying? Yeah, when, when I say I worship God only and I serve him only, I'm talking about an all-in worship. I'm talking about an all-in service. Radical discipleship, 100% dedication to God my Father. And no room for you, Mr. Devil, not any room whatsoever. You, you can tempt me all you want to, but guess what? I'm not going to use your tools. I'm not going to use your weapons. And I'm not going to use your methods. I'm going to use the methods, the tools, and the weapons of the kingdom. Now, let's back up just a wee bit. And let's do a little homiletics, okay? You up for a little homiletics? 
Um, that just means fancy way of saying let's do some interpretation. Let's see if we can interpret what we just actually went through and we can interpret it and understand it in the way that it was meant. Now, whenever you go into homiletics and interpretation, you need to know this is my interpretation and everyone agrees with me. I know you find that hard to believe, but that's the truth. Not everyone agrees with me. So let me tell you the way I see this. Okay. First of all, Satan comes to Jesus and he flashes all the kingdoms of the world in front of him. And he says, all of this can be yours if you'll just bow down and worship me. And I think we've already established that when Jesus saw all of that glory and power and all of those buildings and all of that infrastructure, he's not moved one iota. He's he's not tempted by these tawdry kingdoms when he can go to heaven and, and go to the new Jerusalem. But as I said before, Satan knows that. You see, when I told you they're not just the cities of man, they're the cities of men. And what is happening is that Satan is flashing in front of him millions upon millions upon billions of people. Okay? Now we need to establish something. Why did Jesus come? What was his reason? What was his purpose? What is his mission? Well, I could give you dozens and dozens of verses that express that, but I'm going to limit it to just two. Okay. Later on in the book of Luke, 19th chapter, 10th verse, Jesus says, The Son of Man has come to seek and save the lost. That's my purpose. I have come to find God's elect, to find his chosen, and they're all there in Babylon. All of them. They're not the ones up on top of the roof. They're the ones down in the street in the blood and guts, and they're suffering. So I came to search them, to seek them out, and to save them. That's my mission and my purpose. From the 20th chapter of Matthew, 28th verse. For the Son of Man did not come to be served, but to serve and to do what? To give his life as a ransom for many. I came to ransom their souls. I came to buy them back. To buy their slavery. That's the purpose. That's why I'm going to the cross. That's my passive obedience. I'm going to that cross because I'm buying back the souls of countless people who are imprisoned in Babylon. How's he going to do that? He's going to the cross. And while he's on the cross, he who knew no sin is going to become sin for us. And God is going to pour an eternity's worth of wrath down upon him as he is on that cross during that holy darkness. And this caused Jesus incredible agony. Whenever his soul began to think about what he was facing on that cross, he was in agony. Towards the end of his ministry in the 12th chapter, he says this, Now is my soul troubled. That's an understatement, by the way. And what shall I say? Father, save me from this hour. But for this purpose, I have come to this hour. This is the reason that I'm here. I have come for this purpose. Later on in the Garden of Gethsemane, you know this well. Matthew's version. My soul is sorrowful even to death. My father, if it is possible, let this cup pass from me. Nevertheless, not as I will, but as you will. Jesus dreaded. The separation from his father on the cross. He dreaded the sinfulness that he is going to take upon his sinless shoulders. He dreaded the wrath of God as it poured down upon him for all of the sins of those who have put their trust in him. He was in agony and the devil knew it. So the devil says, there's another way. You pray to your father. And your father said, there's no other way. You said, if there's another way for me to avoid the cross and still have the crown and still accomplish what I came to accomplish, if I can do that, would you please give me the other way? And the father said, no, there is no other way. That's the only way for you to buy back these people. And the devil says, oh, yeah, your father just doesn't want you to know that there's another way. I've got another way for you. You can have the crown without the cross. Now, let me show you something. Let me show you these kingdoms of the world. Let me flash them in front of you because you know what's in that kingdom? Millions upon billions of the people that you came to save. You said the Son of Man came to seek and save the lost. Well, guess what? I own their souls. And I will trade all of them. 
for yours. You want to save them? And wait a minute, we're not just talking about the ones your father chose who you're going to go seek and save. I'm talking about all of them. Every single soul that's in Babylon, I give you because they're mine to give. All you have to do is give me yours. Your soul for theirs. Now you're going to go to the cross and you're going to be a sacrifice to your father you might as well be a sacrifice to me. It's going to be a lot less painful. A lot, lot less painful. So just bow down and worship me. Just exchange your soul for theirs. And you've saved them and accomplished your purpose. Is that unmitigated evil? Or is it? That's the kind of enemy that we have. Now I want you to see Jesus' response. Again, interpret it. And I don't like to put words in Jesus' mouth because I might be wrong. Uh, so I'm going to tell you what I would say if I was Jesus, okay? This is me speaking, but I'm not going to tell you Jesus said this. No. <laughs> no. I will never worship you. You know why I will never worship you? I'll give you two really good reasons why I'll never worship you. Number one, my father says that you shall worship the Lord your God and him only will you serve. And it says that in scriptures and I stand on that word. So he tells me not to worship you. But you know the other reason I'm not going to worship you? Because you're not worthy of worship. You're the scum of the universe. God puts you on your belly to crawl through the dust. And so therefore there is nothing redeeming in you that is worthy of worship. So I will never, ever bow down and worship you. Furthermore, you say you'll give me all these souls and we'll save them that way. No, you won't. Because you're a liar. And you've always been a liar. And you always will be a liar. So I don't believe for one second that you will save those souls. And guess what? You can't save anyone. The only thing that you're capable of doing is to steal, kill, and destroy. You can't build anything up. You can't do anything positive. You can't make anything. All you can do is tear down. So therefore, don't tell me that you're going to save all these people by giving them over to me. Because you can only condemn them to damnation. That's all. You're worth or good for. Yeah, my father has given me some. Not all. But let me tell you something. The ones that he has given me, you have no say. Because this is my father's planet. This is his universe. And they belong to him. They were his before the foundations of the world. And he's giving them to me. I don't need you. I don't need your kingdoms. I don't need your tawdry temptation. I don't need anything that you have to offer because there is absolutely nothing that you can offer that will change the sovereign decree of God. And finally, I will conquer Babylon. But I will not do it using your tools, your methods, or your weapons. I will conquer Babylon... Because if I were to use your tools, weapons, and methods, it would still be Babylon. Don't you understand that? Doesn't the church get that yet? That if we build the kingdom using the tools of the devil, it's still Babylon. It's just got a big Christian sign on it. And it's worse than it was to begin with. We cannot build the kingdom with the devil's tools. And so Jesus says, I'm going to build them with my own. And those are the glorious tools brothers and sisters, and weapons and methods that we have to follow. Now, I was going to point out to you, I'm already out of time. I was going to point out to you um, how devastating it has been in history for every time the church decides it's going to use the tools of the devil to try to build the kingdom, disaster it has been disastrous since the Middle Ages. It was disastrous after the Reformation. And it is disastrous right now as we speak. But because I'm running along and talking too much, let me just give you three. The method, 
the tools, and the weapon by which we conquer Babylon. The method, Jesus stated it. Let me read it for you again. You shall worship the Lord your God, and him only shall you serve. And once again, going back to Deuteronomy 6, brothers and sisters, he's not talking about casual, Sunday-only, nominal, every now and then worship. Once again, I'm making people mad. Because what I'm going to tell you is if that's the kind of Christian you are, you will not have any impact on conquering Babylon. I'm not telling you you're going to go to hell. I'm not telling you you're going to lose your salvation. I'm not telling you that, you know, God is going to make you suffer. What I am telling you is that in the spiritual battle against Babylon, if you become a couch potato, if you watch the world go by, if you get on the broad road to destruction, you're not going to have any impact on conquering Babylon. Even though every single one of us has been called to do that. See, what Jesus refers to is not just Sunday worship. It's life worship. It's worship every moment of every single day. It is worship in what you think and what you say and what you do and what you don't do and the TV shows you watch and what you do on the internet late at night. It is what you do with your life start to finish. That's the kind of radical discipleship worship that Jesus is talking about and that is the kind of a method that Satan cannot stand against. Secondly, we need to use the tools of the kingdom. See, the tools of the kingdom and and what I'll talk about in the after church is that unfortunately throughout the history of humanity we have tried what is known as dominionism. The church has tried to take over the various dominions of society. Oh, family, education, media, arts and uh, uh, um, um, entertainment, uh, politics. I mean, these are the way we try to solve the problems and we think if we can just infiltrate all of these dominions with Christians then everything's going to be fine. Well, she's using the tools of the devil to try to defeat the devil. And Jesus had some poignant words to say about a house divided. doesn't work, folks. For goodness sakes, get your head out of politics. Get out of governmental solutions for the problems that the world faces. We have the tools. The tools of the gospel of Jesus Christ and the word that it is written in. That is how we change lives. That is how we change people. That is how the kingdom has been built from the very beginning on the gospel of Jesus Christ and on his infallible, inerrant word. When are we going to get it through our heads? Yeah, go ahead. March all you want to. But it's the gospel that is going to make the difference. It is the word of God that is going to change lives. Finally, the weapon. Church has a weapon. They just don't realize it. And the weapon is love. And you're going to say, wait, 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 wait a minute. I, I, I don't think about love as a weapon. That's not the way love is. Well, yes, it is. In fact, it's the most powerful weapon we have, folks. Now, I'm not talking about sentimentality. I'm not talking about emotionalism. And I'm not talking about the warm fuzzies. Talking about love that drives people to do things that the devil doesn't understand. You see, it's our secret weapon because his Achilles heel is he doesn't understand the truth. And if he doesn't understand the truth, he doesn't understand love. You see, he didn't understand why Jesus had to go to the cross. It wasn't because he could rule less people or suffer more. It was because he loves us. For God so loved this world that he sent his only son. That's the reason for the exercise. God's overwhelming love that he pours upon those that he's called out of darkness. It is because of love. That is a weapon that we have. And why is it a weapon? It's because the devil doesn't understand it. He doesn't know what love is. In fact, when when you're fighting a war, which we are, and you have a, 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 a weaker group, and I'm talking in human terms, not with Jesus. We're, with Jesus, we're the strongest group in the world. But just by ourselves, we're weaker than the devil. Okay, And when you have a weaker, smaller force that is going head-to-head with a stronger, larger force, you, you have to use a tactic or a strategy that they don't expect. Great example is the American Revolution. Did you know this? 
Did you know that in those days, the way they conducted warfare is crazy to us today. They'd find a big field and they'd line up facing each other in these big long lines with all their cannons and all their guns. And all of a sudden, they'd just start shooting at each other. And they would move people around like chess uh, members on the board. And whoever out-strategized the other at huge human loss won the battle. Well, the Americans were way outclassed. They didn't have the firepower or the number of people that the British did. So what did they do? They introduced guerrilla warfare. They shot from the trees and from behind barns and at night and they disappeared into the darkness so that they could shoot again. I mean, the British didn't know what was going to happen. It was a method of warfare that they had no clue of. And that was one of the reasons that we won that war. Well, if we're trying to conquer Babylon, let's use a weapon that the devil doesn't understand. The devil doesn't understand love. He does. That's why he didn't understand Jesus. He just does not understand love. And if we use love against him, again, brothers and sisters, carrying signs that say hateful things towards people that we don't like is not love. That, I mean, that is not the weapon of the kingdom of God. The weapons of the kingdom of God are love. And let me just, let me give you an example. Embarrass Matthew and Christina. I mean, be careful because I don't want to step on any toes. Well, I guess I, I do. Um, but I, I don't necessarily want to speak negatively about for pro, not-for-profit organizations, NGOs that are parachurch companies that do things. My son-in-law is involved with one, Cross International. My daughter is involved with another one, Samaritan's Purse. My other daughter is involved with another one, Mercy Ship. So I better be careful in what I say. They, they have their place. We can't do what they do. We, we can't put up a huge ship or put up the hospital in Haiti the way Samaritan's Purse is. We can't do that. So, yeah, it has its place. That's not what I'm talking about. What I'm talking about is churches like ours and how we respond to disasters or things that we can't do ourselves. Now, the inclination is this. Is we simply, oh, there's an earthquake in Haiti. Let's give money to this organization or that organization. Oh, we, we, great. We gave our money. We're done. And that's exactly what the devil would like us to do. I can't say anything about this earthquake, but I can speak to the 2010 earthquake. And many of you already know this, that tens of millions of dollars were raised. All of a sudden, every single not-for-profit organization had some ministry in Haiti or some connection. And they're all collecting money, taking their 15% out and putting it in banks. Do you know a huge amount of that money is still in those banks 11 years later? Perfectly legal. In banks and in investments, firms earning money from them, just as long as you dole it out a little bit at a time, that's all okay. Well, that's the world the devil understands. He understands high finance. He understands be a deacon, I mean, um, uh, banking. He, he understands the, the way that things work. He understands graft. He understands greed. He understands how to embezzle. He understands all that. And if that's the way we're going to respond in this church to the need of the kingdom, then Satan's right in the middle of it. Let me tell you what the devil is not prepared for. A young couple in the Bahamas who Christ speaks to their heart with love and says, there's a disaster out there. Leave your home. Leave your job. Put yourself in harm's way. Perhaps get a disease. Gang violence everywhere you turn. People stealing from everyone who walks in, knowing they're carrying money and things like that. They're carrying $10,000 when they go. And yet they still went. Why? Because of love. Because of the love of Christ that's in their hearts. The devil's not ready for that. You see, that's a tactic. That is a weapon that he doesn't understand. He doesn't understand love. And so therefore, if that is our weapon against what he does, then he can't stand against it. It's his, his Achilles heel. Well, let me leave you with this. Disaster has occurred throughout the history of the church. When we try to use the tools, the weapons, and the methods of, this, of the devil against him. All we do is build another Babylon. 
That if we want to really conquer Babylon, we want to conquer the city of man, the earthly city, the kingdoms of this world. If we want to accomplish the great commission in the way that the Lord has called us to accomplish the great mission, we commission, we are going to go forward with these three banners. We are going to practice the method of the kingdom, which is to worship the Lord our God and serve him 100% day and night and him only. We are going to stand on the word of God because that's where truth is. We are going to share the gospel with a world that desperately needs it. We're going to stay out of Washington, stay out of politics, stay out of racial divide, stay out of everything that divides us and be bound together in love. Thirdly, did I skip? I said we're bound together. That was supposed to be the gospel and, 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 and the words. Thirdly, it's love. And brothers and sisters, you know something that the devil will never be able to handle here at New Hope Community Church is if we love each other. That's what makes us strong. And we put everything else aside, whether you're vaccinated or not vaccinated, whether you wear a mask or you don't wear a mask, whether you're white or black, whether you come from one side of the country or the other side of the country or an island off the coast of the country. All of those things are things that divide people. But the one thing that the devil cannot stand against is when we love each other. And that love transcends everything because then we become powerful. And then we turn that love at the, at the kingdom around us, just like Matthew and Christina did when they go and they help the kingdom in Haiti when they need it. And then we turn that love loose on the world. Brothers and sisters, that's how you conquer Babylon. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, as, as, as we set out every day for this struggle, and we do, it, it is a fight. And we know that our enemy is crafty and wise and brilliant, and boy, he knows us like a book. And so, Lord, help us to recognize the things that he doesn't know. He doesn't know truth. You said that yourself. And he doesn't know love. And, and, and he, even though he knows how to quote your word, he doesn't understand what that word means. Lord, help us to stand on those things for those to be our weapons and not the weapons of this world. Because only through using your methods, tools, and weapons do we have any chance of doing what we know inevitably will happen. That is to conquer Babylon. In Christ's name we pray. Amen.